Good morning again. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14, our sermon text this morning is Matthew chapter 14, the entire chapter. We'll go ahead and read that together. Uh, Before we do, uh, let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you uh, again because we long to hear from you. We long to feed on your word. Uh, We long to have a glimpse of our Savior in the scriptures. So we pray, Father, that you would open our hearts and minds now, that you would help us to understand your word, help us to believe your word. We pray that you would help us to rest more fully in our Savior and to live in light of him to your glory. Work in us by your spirit right now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 14, beginning with verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. When Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, If it is you, command me to come to you on the the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. 
But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. When the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Well, if you Google the phrase, the way the world works, what comes up are articles about politics. And yet, not just about politics, articles specifically about economics. Because I guess money makes the world go round. Why would that be? Well, because, you know, money is power and power is what makes things go. Well, at least that's what we think. How does the world work? Well, it depends on what you mean. The truth is there are two contrasting systems in the world. There are two uh, paradigms, two dynamics at play. In biblical language, there are two different kingdoms, two governments. And I don't mean one nation versus another. I mean something bigger than that. Uh, Paul points it out in Colossians chapter 1. He says, The Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. See, there are two kingdoms. The domain of darkness, according to Paul, and the kingdom of Jesus. And every day we all live according to the laws or the rules or the systems of one of these two kingdoms. In our passage this morning, we're going to see these two kingdoms contrasted, juxtaposed against one another along three points of comparison. And so we're going to see, uh, and you can see this in your bulletin on the back, there's an outline there. Uh, We'll see two authorities, uh, two ways of ruling, and two ways of living. First, we're going to talk about these two authorities that we see in Matthew chapter 14. And really what I want to do is just paint the picture that Matthew is trying to paint for us here in Matthew 14. Well, when you first uh, get to Matthew 14, we're introduced to a man named Herod. Herod is the ruler over Galilee. And this ruler hears about Jesus' miracles And uh, maybe it's because he has a guilty conscience about putting John the Baptist to death. But Herod assumes that Jesus is John the Baptist come back from the dead. And Herod uh, explains Jesus' miracles by saying that John the Baptist has been raised. Uh, Clearly, Herod doesn't quite have all of his facts straight. But at this point, Matthew uh, goes in to tell us the story of John the Baptist's death. Now, the Herods were not great people. Uh, You may remember uh, back in Matthew chapter 2, where we saw Herod the Great slaughter all of the the small children in Bethlehem. Well, this Herod is that Herod's son, Herod the Tetrarch. And this Herod uh, and his brother Philip's wife, they fell in love, and Herod ends up taking his brother's wife as his own. Well, John the Baptist called him out on that. And so Herod had John the Baptist put in prison. What Herod really wanted to do was put John the Baptist to death, but he didn't because of his fear of the people. You see, they thought John the Baptist was a prophet, 
And Herod didn't want to look bad in front of his constituents, right? So, so allowing John the Baptist to live was really a political mover, uh, maneuver on his part. Well, eventually the story takes a turn, right? And Herod is throwing himself a birthday party. His niece or stepdaughter uh, dances for him and his party guests. It's probably safe to say that, that her dance, as most throughout history have said, that her dance was less than appropriate. And the king's response to her immoral display is to promise this girl anything she wants. She confers with her mother on this, uh, Herodias, and eventually asks for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Herod is torn at this point because he doesn't want to put John the Baptist to death for fear of the people, but he has to put John the Baptist to death for fear of his dinner guests. See, he's afraid that his dinner guests will will see his fear of the people if he doesn't put John the Baptist to death. So he's stuck between these two fears. And so he puts John John the Baptist to death by beheading. He serves the head of John the Baptist to his stepdaughter on a platter. He's not a nice guy. And yet Herod is a shepherd of Israel. The shepherding language is used throughout the Old Testament of the rulers of Israel. And Herod is a ruler of Israel. That's his job. Herod is a shepherd, but he's a shepherd who feeds on the sheep rather than feeding the sheep. Like quite literally, Herod had put John the Baptist's head on a serving platter. And of course, metaphorically, he was using John the Baptist as a pawn for maintaining his reputation. This is the first king that we get a picture of in Matthew chapter 14. Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, who feeds on the sheep rather than cares for them. But then we have a second king in this chapter. Jesus hears about the death of John the Baptist and he goes off to be alone probably goes to mourn, right, the death of his cousin and his friend. Well, the crowds follow him, and as usual, Jesus has compassion on them. He cares for their needs. He heals their sick. And as it gets late, the disciples come to Jesus, and they say, send these people away. Send them into the towns to get food. It's kind of interesting as you read through the Gospels, the disciples are always sending people away from Jesus, right, exactly the opposite of what they're supposed to be doing. But this is what they do here. Send the people away to go get food. And Jesus responds unexpectedly, you give them something to eat. Now, we're told later that there were about 5,000 men there, plus women and children, right? So if you do the math, there are possibly over 10,000 people there. Now, imagine we put on a day-long conference and with 10,000 people. We bring in some well-known speaker, and at the lunch break, he tells us, rather than sending the people out to lunch, we should just whip something up real quick and serve all 10,000 then and there. That's how the disciples felt. You've got to be kidding, right? You you don't just whip up a meal for 10,000 people on the spot in a desert place, right? Jesus, of course, is undeterred by their skepticism, And they bring him what little they do have, five dinner rolls and two fish, probably small fish. And Jesus orders the crowd to sit down on the grass. Now, that's actually an important detail for a couple of reasons. I mean, Jesus is being contrasted with Herod, right? And so first here, Jesus doesn't merely say to them, sit down on the grass. He orders the people, right? That's what kings do. They give orders. So Jesus orders them to to sit down on the grass. He's acting like a king. But Second, Jesus orders them to sit down on the grass. Okay, that 
maybe seems insignificant, but there are few, if any, meaningless details in biblical narrative, right? And so Jesus is being shown here to be a good shepherd, like the good shepherd of Psalm 23, who makes us lie down in green pastures and prepares a table for us. So Jesus has, Jesus the good shepherd has the crowds sit down on the grass and then he miraculously feeds 10,000 or so people. A miracle, by the way, which uh, few people may have even noticed. Only the disciples knew how little food he had. As far as everybody else is concerned, Jesus is just passing this out. While everyone eats and is satisfied, there are 12 baskets full left over, one for each disciple. And then Jesus sends his disciples across the sea while he dismisses the crowd. And this is where the story gets a little weird. Jesus spends the whole night in prayer, and about three or four in the morning, uh, the disciples are struggling on the sea, so it must have been a pretty fierce wind because they're stuck in the middle of the sea. And so Jesus, seeing them, he comes to them to end their struggle, walking on the sea. And, and the disciples are understandably terrified, right? They think Jesus is a ghost. And Jesus speaks to them, take heart, I am do not be afraid. The moment Jesus gets into the boat, the wind stops. Now, at the moment, I, I just want you to notice one thing about these two kings. I, I want you to note the kind of power that each one has. Herod, the king, like his father before him, has the power of death. Right? His only real exercise of power is putting John the Baptist to death. Jesus, on the other hand, has the power of life. Right? I mean, he multiplies the loaves and the fish to feed the multitudes. He walks on the water through the storm. He calms the sea. This is real power, right? power to give life, power to preserve life. So we have these two authorities, these two kings. One has the power of death, the other the power of life. And in light of that, we begin to see two different ways of ruling. We can summarize, summarize these two ways like this. In the kingdoms of this world, those in power are the ones who are served. If you're in power, you use your power to serve yourself. But in the kingdom of Jesus, those in power are the ones who serve. If you are in power, you use your power to serve others. Jesus says as much in Mark chapter 10, which we read earlier. There he says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, the way the world works, those who are in power are the ones who are served. They lord it over others. They, they exercise authority. They use force to get people to serve them. But that's not the way the kingdom of Jesus works. In his kingdom, those in positions of authority are the ones who serve. See, we see here in, in this chapter Herod serving himself throughout the first story. Herod throws John the Baptist in jail because he's annoyed at his preaching. He throws this lavish party to celebrate his own birthday. I should say there's nothing wrong with celebrating birthdays, by the way. Uh, yesterday we celebrated Thomas's birthday. But Matthew is painting for us a picture of this opulent king. And at that birthday party, Herod has his stepdaughter dance to the sinful delight of himself and his guests. 
Again, I might need to say, there's nothing wrong with dancing in and of itself either, but the implication here is, is likely the provocative nature of her dance in front of this group of men. Well, finally, Herod uses his power to put John the Baptist to death, to make himself look good in front of those same dinner guests. See, Herod is using his power, using his resources, using his influence to further his own comfort and pleasure and ease. See, the way the world often works is those in power are those who are served. They use their power to serve themselves. Now, we actually can see this all around us every day. Oftentimes, we can see it in our own hearts. But in order to do that, we need to realize that there are different kinds of power. I mean, some people are in positions of authority, that's true, Some people have other kinds of power. Some people have money or influence or beauty or intelligence or charisma, right? Different resources that God has given each one of us. And the question is, how do we use them? Mostly to serve ourselves. We maneuver and we manipulate. We coerce and cajole. Sometimes we lie and we cheat and we bribe. We intimidate people with our position or our vocabulary or our looks, We try to impress people, right, because of our our rhetoric or our beauty or our GPA, all to get what we want. And we're so good at it, half the time we don't even realize it, right? We, We rarely rely on God to work because we know how to work the system. So we use whatever power we have to get what we want to serve ourselves. Herod uses his power to serve himself. What about Jesus? What about the second king in this chapter? Jesus has compassion on the crowds. He heals their sick. He feeds the hungry. He stills the storm for the weary disciples. Jesus comes to serve. And we know that this is just the beginning of his service, isn't it? I mean, Jesus' ultimate act of service is not healing the sick or feeding the hungry, but taking our mortality upon himself, giving his body as bread to feed the multitude. So the way Jesus rules is not by serving himself for his own good, but by serving us for our good. Jesus serves us even in the very ways that the world says we must serve ourselves. The very areas that the world says you need to look out for yourself here. We think about it. Herod is trying to build a reputation for himself with the people and with his dinner guests. Jesus gives up his reputation. He takes our sin and our guilt and our shame as his reputation on the cross. And then he gives us his righteousness and his glory. No longer do you have to try to earn a reputation, but for those who are in Jesus, Jesus says, I'll give you my reputation. I'll give you my righteousness. That's a reputation that can't be lost and one that can't be bettered. Jesus says, if you believe in me when you stand before the Father, you're clothed in my reputation before the Father. Herod lives in self-indulgence, trying to find pleasure in this life. But Jesus goes to the cross and suffers that we might find pleasure. An intimacy with, with God that can only be compared in the Bible to the intimacy of lovers. And so Jesus goes without that we might have all that we need. The, the good shepherd cares for his sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The way the world works, those in power are those who are served. You use your power to serve yourself. But the way Jesus works is he uses his power to serve others. Those in power are those who serve. 
This, by the way, is, is important to understand church leadership. Church leaders are servants. To lead is to serve. To be a leader in the church uh, doesn't necessarily mean that, that I call all the shots or have all the ideas or something like that. No, Scott and David and I are servants of the church. That's our job. Our job as shepherds is to serve the sheep, to care for the sheep, particularly by feeding the sheep with the word of God. However you break it down, though, and of course there are other things that we could say about church leadership, but whatever else we could say must be understood in this context. Church leaders are servants because leadership in Jesus' kingdom is always about serving. So we have these two kingdoms, the domain of darkness and the kingdom of Jesus. In the one, power is used to serve self. The more power you have, the more you are served, the more you get what you want, right? In the other, power is used to serve others. The more power you have, the more you serve, and the more you care for others in what they need. Well, that's looking at these two kingdoms from the perspective of of the one who's in authority. And now I want to look at these two kingdoms from the perspective of those who are under authority, So we've seen these two different ways of ruling, but that leads us to two different ways of living. How does the world work? Well, in the domain of darkness, which is ruled by the Herods of this world, where power is used to serve self, it produces people who live in fear. But in the kingdom of Jesus, ruled by the good shepherd, where power is used to serve others, that produces people who walk by faith. So the two contrasting ways of living are are fear, living in fear, versus living by faith. It's important to see here that Herod, even Herod, serves something, doesn't he? I mean, in one sense, in a bad way, Herod is serving the people that he's supposed to rule. He's afraid of the people because they think that John the Baptist is a prophet. He's afraid of his birthday guests because of what they might think if he goes back on his oath. And so he's catering to them. Right? He's, he's serving them in the sense of people-pleasing. And people-pleasing is serving others on the surface, really to the end of serving self. And so, who is Herod really serving? Well, he's serving himself, but we could go deeper than that. He's serving himself. We could break that down. He's serving his reputation. He's serving his own pleasure. Right? He's worried about what people will think if, uh, if he kills John. He's worried about what his guests will think if he goes back on his oath. He's worried about his loss of power and ease and comfort if his reputation is diminished. So the Herods of this world live in fear. See, if power is used to serve self, or if those in power are the ones who are served, then we're all always in this scramble, right? This scramble to get on top. We all want to to be served, and so we, we fight over being on top. We're afraid of being on the bottom. In fact, we're afraid of lots of things, aren't we? I mean, we, we need power to care for ourselves. We, we think we need money, we need position, we need influence. And only if we get that kind of power will we get what we need, not to mention what we want. And so we fear. We fear that we can't take care of ourselves. We fear that we will be disadvantaged. We fear that we won't be able to protect ourselves. Right? In this kind of a power-based system, if we don't have enough power, we end up on the bottom serving those who do, which means we live in fear. We live in fear of the other guy getting the job or of the other guy getting the promotion. We live in fear of someone who has more than us, more money, more intelligence, more beauty, more strength, a higher GPA. 
because we're afraid that, that they will get to buy the bigger house and, and they will get to marry the more beautiful spouse or they will get the more lavish vacations and we will be stuck at home in our dingy house with our subpar spouse. Right? That's the way the world thinks. And truth be told, this is sometimes the way we think as well. It's not always competitive, of course. Fear is an equal opportunity employer. employer. Consider Peter, right? You often wonder what's going on in Peter's head. When Jesus comes uh, to his disciples on the sea, uh, Peter asks Jesus to command him to come out on the water. Who knows why? But Jesus indulges him and says, come. Peter takes a few steps out onto the water, which really is amazing, by the way. Peter walks to Jesus on the water. But he takes a few steps before realizing what he's doing. And then he looks around and he sees the wind and the waves and Peter begins to fear. And as a result, he begins to sink. And he does the right thing at this point. He he cries out to Jesus, Lord, save me. And Jesus takes him by the hand and pulls him out of the water and they walk back to the boat. What's going on here? In in a world where power is everything, I'm constantly comparing my strength to my situation. And so I look at my job requirements and compare that to my job skills. And if the one exceeds the other, I live in fear, right? Anxiety. I look at my relational problems. I compare that to my ability to talk myself out of things. And if my problems are greater than my ability, I live in fear, Uh, I look at my to-do list and I compare that to my time and my money and my talents. And if the one exceeds the other, I live in constant worry and anxiety and fear. Well, Peter gets out on the water and we're specifically told that he sees the wind, uh, which means something like he sees the effects of the wind, right? He sees the crashing of these waves. And Peter does a little comparison. Man versus storm. And Peter wets his pants. I mean, literally, he falls in the water, right? (laughs) Peter realizes he doesn't have the strength to take on this storm. The storm is more powerful than Peter. So Peter becomes afraid and begins to sink. What happened? I mean, he was doing so well, right? He walked out to Jesus on the water. Well, in that moment, when Peter looks around at the storm, the storm becomes bigger in Peter's mind than Jesus. Suddenly, Jesus is left out of the equation. Man versus storm, man loses. See, whenever we look at our situations or our circumstances and measure the outcome by our strength, we either end up foolishly overconfident or realistically scared to death. Because life is hard. And there are dozens of situations in life that we really can't handle, that threaten to undo us and to overtake us. You know, maybe uh, we find ourselves in a deserted place in life like the crowds. Maybe we lack the physical sustenance that we need. Or maybe we're just relationally alone. Or maybe we find ourselves in the midst of some of life's storms. We lose our job or we lose a loved one. We face a life-threatening disease or we face a divorce. Uh, We have a run of of exams that, that are just overwhelming to us. Life seems confusing and scary. We feel like we're sinking. And if we look at our own resources at this point, if we live like we belong to this world and its kingdoms, right, we will live in fear. We'll be terrified. Man versus storm, man loses, I'm scared. Right, but notice Jesus' response to Peter. Jesus says to Peter, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? 
Peter's fear was born of doubt. He doubted that Jesus was with him. He doubted Jesus' power. He doubted the good shepherd would or could care for him. In that moment, Peter didn't believe in the one who stood right before him. He believed in the storm, and he believed in himself. And he knew better than to think that he had what it takes to beat the storm. See, Jesus here and throughout the Gospels is patiently teaching his disciples to live by faith. He's showing them that that he will provide for their needs. He will care for their bodies. He will get them through life's storms. He is the king of heaven and earth, the one who feeds his sheep, the one who treads on the waters and calms the winds and the waves. Here's a king with real power, and he's their king. And so he says to them, do not fear. See, power in life is is really unstable. I mean, pleasure is uncertain. Uh, Reputations are easily lost. Life is precarious. And, And if we live seeking to serve ourselves based on the power that we have at our disposal, we will inevitably live in fear. But if we live resting in the care of our shepherd, we will be freed up, freed from fear and free to serve others. Do you see how that works, right? I mean, if my reputation and pleasure and safety is in my hands, then I have to constantly seek to provide for myself because if I don't, who will, right? So I use my power to serve my own ends. But if my reputation and pleasure and safety is in somebody else's hands, somebody trustworthy, somebody like King Jesus, then I'm free, right? Free to serve others, free to love, free not to be afraid. You see, we're all living according to the rules of one kingdom or another. Too often, I live like Herod. Right? I'm worried about what people think, living to please myself. Or I'm like the disciples, right? thinking there can't possibly be enough to go around here. Or I live like Peter, overwhelmed with the wind and the waves. And so I live in self-indulgence and in fear rather than faith, which leads to service. Now, we could berate ourselves, right? Don't be self-indulgent. Go serve, right? Go live selflessly because we should do those things, right? But we don't get there by beating ourselves up. That comes as we learn to live by faith in Jesus, as we keep our eyes on the one who controls the wind and the waves, the one who multiplied the loaves and the fish. Jesus is able to provide what we need so that we can abound in service to others. And Jesus does that by providing a reputation for us, by promising us pleasure in his Father, and then caring for us and promising to be with us throughout the storms of life. And so we have two options, right? We can can live seeking to gain these kinds of things for ourselves, and so live in constant anxiety of trying to gain them and constant fear of one day losing them. Or we can live trusting that Jesus has and will provide all that we need. And so coming to Jesus and finding rest for our souls. Come to the good shepherd, right? Let him feed you. Let him lead you. Live in the confidence that though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he will be with you. And so goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. Come to Jesus. Know that, that he serves you. That's what he came to do. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Know how he serves you, and then walk in faith, trusting him and serving others in his name. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would help us to keep our eyes on King Jesus. We are so quick to look at our circumstances. 
We're so quick to look at the storms. We're so quick to look at the fact that we have so little, just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. And we see the storms and we see how little we have and we think, oh, we just can't do it. We're overwhelmed. We're afraid. Father, help us to keep our eyes on Jesus. To know that he is a king who cares for his people. He is a shepherd who provides for his sheep. Help us to rest in that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.